Well, we're going to jump into our, continue our series in the book of 1 Peter. If you'd bow your heads with me, we'll pray and then we'll launch right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. I thank you for this time that we can gather together as a body of believers, those of us who are online and in person. I thank you that we have this opportunity to worship you in freedom, that we have this time to worship you through song. Thank you for the blessing of worshiping you this morning. Thank you for your presence in our song. I pray, Father, that you will send the Holy Spirit to fall fresh upon us, that we will, as we open up the Scriptures, be enlivened by the Word of God, that we'll be led and directed to glorify Jesus even more in our lives. I pray that this truth from the Scriptures will grow in our hearts. It's not an easy word, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that we will receive it with glad and open hearts. In your name, amen. Amen. Last service, as I uh, preached this, this sermon to the 9 a.m., it, it dawned on me that this is probably the most difficult sermon that I have ever preached. Difficult because it's not fun. Difficult because it's a hard word. But it's also a hopeful word because there is joy in the midst of suffering. And that is the title of our service, of our sermon today, Joy in Suffering. Now, in the English language, there are things called, the, uh, called oxymoronic statements or oxymorons. Has anybody ever heard of an oxymoron, right? An oxymoron is defined as such. It is a figure of speech which apparently contradictory terms, which, sorry, apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction. What that means is apparently these two words shouldn't go together. They're kind of separate. They're words that you wouldn't put together normally. And here are a couple of oxymorons. Act natural, right? Acting is different than being natural. Another one is alone together. (laughs) That's definitely different. But if there are a couple of people in a room, they can be alone together. Bittersweet. Something that is bittersweet. You might say, well, bitter and sweet don't go together, but if you've ever had dark chocolate, that's bittersweet. Original copy. Original copy. You're looking at something that is original, but then it's a copy, which means it's the first copy of the original, right? It's kind of odd. They shouldn't go together, but they do, and they're called oxymorons. There are several oxymorons in the English language. If you go to Google and you type in oxymorons, you can have a whole bunch alphabetical. I only gave you a few. Why do I share that? Because when we look at joy in suffering, that can seem like an oxymoronic statement, right? How can we have joy in suffering? But it is an absolute fact that we are shown throughout Scripture. Peter in this book will consistently show us how we can have joy in suffering. Although this seems oxymoronic, it is not in that sense that it is go they do go together. Rick Warren defines biblical joy in a really great way. I really love this definition. So you might want to write down the whole thing, all right? So if, you, if you're a writer and you're going to ask me what this statement is later, because some of you do, I'm going to say it slow and you might want to write this down. Rick Warren defines biblical joy as this. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. So point number one is joy is the settled assurance that God 
is in control. Joy is this settle, settled assurance that God is in control. We are going to be using that definition throughout this sermon to know that God is in control, that we can have a settled assurance, no matter what is going on around us, that God is in control. We can have joy in suffering. Suffering often in our lives brings joylessness, where we can look at the suffering that is in our lives and allow a sense of joylessness to wash over us. But we can actually see joy in the midst of suffering. So you're probably wondering, and I hope you're asking this question because it's the question that we are going to be asking this morning, is how can we find joy in the middle of suffering? Pastor, you're saying that we can find joy in suffering. How do we do that? How can we find joy in the midst of suffering? Well, I believe Peter answers that question in 1 Peter 1, 6-12. So if you'd open your scripture with me, or you can read on the screen. 1 Peter 1, 6-12. The word of the Lord says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. A powerful passage, and we'll discover a tough passage. The scripture is not always easy. The scripture is sometimes difficult, and it's sometimes hard for us to want to implement. But we're going to see how we can have joy in the midst of suffering. I believe that we're going to see four paths that you and I need to walk down in order to find joy in the midst of suffering. And the first path that we're going to see this morning from the scriptures is transcendence. Joy transcends trials. Joy transcends trials. Peter is talking to a persecuted church. They are being destroyed and killed and burnt alive for their beliefs. And he says, even though that's happening in this, rejoice. Rejoice. In this, rejoice. Though you are experiencing and will experience suffering, rejoice. Because joy transcends trials. Look at the word. He says this, you have been grieved by various trials. That Greek word can also mean saddened, that you can be saddened by what is going on around you. He doesn't say it's bad that you're saddened, but what he says is that you can be filled with joy even though you're in the midst of sad, grieving trials. No matter what is going on around you, joy can and should and does transcend your trials. 
This is not an easy thing to grasp. And then in 8b, he says that this joy is inexpressible. This joy is so powerful. It is so transcendent that you and I can't even express how deep, how real, how rich it is. You and I can't even explain why this joy happens in our lives. All we know is that we have it. When people come and say, how in the world, during all of this suffering, all of this pain, can you have joy? The early church was asked that question. How can you have joy? You are weird. You are strange. This doesn't make sense. Most people, when they suffer, and they, they try to stop the suffering. Rather than being joyful in the midst of suffering, they try to push it down. They say, get away from me, suffering. They try to shove it away. They try to run from it. But the early church ran towards suffering, and they had joy in the midst of it. They were weird. It's okay to be weird. I get told I'm weird all the time. So kids, adults, if you get called weird, say, all right, I'm weird. Being normal is boring. (laughs) One commentator says this, "The, the joy is inexpressible beyond human description, for in truth it does not belong to this world order, and it is certainly not of human origin. If you and I were left to human joy, suffering would break us. If you and I believe that we could have joy in and of ourselves, suffering would break us. And maybe you're saying, you know what? This suffering is breaking me. This pandemic goes on and on and on and on and on. And there's new rules that keep coming out every day. If you read the Indiana Gazette, you'll see that the borough made all kinds of new rules that are going to be rolling out shortly. It's not fun. It's not easy. I'm not going to depress you with what those rules are right now. (laughs) You can go look and have joy later. (laughs) But the reality is is that this joy is not from you. You cannot be joyful on your own. That's why joy is transcendent, because God is transcendent. You're not transcendent. Sorry to break it to you. But we have to walk down the path of transcendent, recognizing that God is transcendent. He is above all. And that the joy that he provides is not a worldly joy. It is a godly joy. And we need to rely upon his transcendent joy. Because trials cannot touch the joy that God gives us. It was the early Christians' vivid awareness of the reality of God in their lives that caused them to rejoice in this profound sense. And it carried them through all manner of privation and persecution in a world that looked askance at their strange religion. There's that word strange again. They were weird, but they were able to get through it. They were able to have the joy of the Lord because of the presence of the living God. In fact, God's presence has the power to break the bonds of joylessness. God's presence has the power to break the bonds of joylessness. Amen? When we are in the presence of God, everything else seems small. When we are in the glory of the throne room, nothing else can touch 
anything. And we believe that and know that because we are before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, where we can't do anything but fall down and worship Him. This is why I believe and I have consistently talked about us going to the presence of the living God. This is why I believe God has been burdening my heart with the desperate desire to pray. As a church, we need to gather and pray. As elders and business board and staff and church members, we need to be on our face going to the very presence of God because without the presence of God, we do not in and of ourselves have the power to break the bonds of joylessness. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. We desperately need the presence of the living God. And the early church got it. They recognized their need for the presence of the living God. They recognized their need for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. They recognized their need of God in every aspect of their lives. And they were weird. The world around them said, what could possibly drive you? It was the presence of the living God. My friends, there can be joy in suffering. The second path is the path of testing. We can see that genuine faith is tested faith. Genuine faith is tested faith. One commentator said, Faith is not known to be what it is unless it is tested by suffering. Here's where this gets a little bit hard. Here's where this passage from Peter to the early church is not fun. Genuine faith is tested faith. What Peter's also insinuating is that a tested person in the midst of suffering, that test will weed out the faithless. That time of testing will weed out the faithless. One of my favorite quotes is, there can be no growth without pruning. There can be no growth without pruning. If you and I want to grow in our faith, we will be pruned. If we want to grow in our faith, testing will come. Genuine faith is tested faith. I I love that, that, that statement so much, there can be no growth without pruning, that I put it on my whiteboard in my office because I need to be constantly reminded of the need for God to prune my life. It is a difficult word. And this is a a vineyard type of idea, that in order for the best grapes to grow, the most rich and tasty grapes to grow, there needs to be a constant pruning of the vine. Hillary and I, we have a, uh, in the back of the parsonage, we have a blueberry bush. And maybe you've been to the house and you've seen this giant tree. It's one of the biggest blueberry bushes I've ever seen in my life. But we were getting really sour blueberries. We were tasting these blueberries and going, ugh. And so we didn't want them. We didn't want to eat the blueberries. They weren't even good in pies. How, just imagine that, a pie that's bad because of sour blueberries. It was a fact. So we talked to some people, we did some research, and we cut the thing in half. We cut the blueberry bush in half. We chipped it all away. We pruned all the branches all the way back after the season. And you know what? This year, we've got some good blueberries. 
They are good blueberries. In fact, when we go to pick some blueberries off this tree with our kids, and they're picking and they're putting them in basket, they put five in their mouth and one in the basket. So we get back to the house and there's no blueberries for anything because they ate them all, right? But that wouldn't have happened. Those tasty blueberries would not have happened without pruning. And if we don't want to be pruned, we will not grow. But the hard fact of what Peter is saying is something that Jesus said as well. That these trials, these trials and, and suffering issues in our lives, these circumstances that cause pain will weed out the faithless. They will weed out the faithless. That is a hard word. That is not something easy to own. Have we been what I like to call chaffy, or have we been weedy in our lives? Because in this time of the the suffering that we may experience, or the pandemic that just goes on and on and on and piles more upon us, and piles all kinds of issues and frustration and trials in our lives, have we been walking away from the presence of God or running to the presence of God? Has our faith that has been tested proven faithless? That's a difficult word because God will separate the wheat from the chaff. He will do it. There was a, a story that I heard of in the book of Martyrs that there was a, a group of soldiers, I believe it was in China, a group of soldiers who came into a church and they, they came into a worship service just like ours with their guns brandished and they came in and they said, who's willing to die for their faith? And several people stayed, but several people left. And the soldiers then put down their guns and say, now we get to worship with real believers. (laughs) That's a tough word. That's a tough word. But that is what trials do. That is what suffering does. He talks about gold being refined by fire. Trials refine us. They take away the impurities. Trials refine us in the fact that they prune out the things in our lives. Have we been faithless? I believe that the American church is being tested during this time, and there is more testing to come. Are we going to prove to be wheat or chaff? And my prayer is that we take this word to heart, and we see that one of the paths... So finding joy in suffering is rejoicing in our testing. How often do we run away from the tests of our faith? How often do we say, no, please, I don't want any growth. Don't prune a thing in my life. No, I don't want trials. I don't want suffering. We actually try to shove them away. We try to push them away. We try to get out of those moments. But God promises that there is joy in suffering. Tozer defines true faith this way. He says, true faith is never found alone. It is always accompanied by expectation. The man who believes the promises of God expects to see them fulfilled. Where there is no expectation, there is no faith. And that's point six. Where there is no expectation, there is no faith. What he's meaning 
is that faith believes even though it's tested. Faith expects God to show up when He promises to. Faith expects the pinky-dinky promises of God to happen. Are we expecting God to bring joy in suffering? Are we allowing the testing of our faith? Do we believe this? Now trust me when I say that this is not easy. I'm not standing up here saying, I am so perfect at this faith thing. I trust God all the time. No, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I don't struggle in the same exact way that you do. And if I were to pretend any different, I would be a liar. Because I struggle with it as well. I struggle with this aspect of expecting God to bring this beauty of joy in the midst of trial. I have recognized that every time I do step away or pull back from the presence of God, even for a small amount of time, I slip into joylessness. Whenever I step away from the presence of God, when I neglect to read the scriptures, when I neglect to be on my face, when I neglect to spend time with the living King, I fall into sense of joylessness. In fact, you know, it happens in my life that this time of testing, there was a moment where I was just so joyless that I had to reach out to a mentor of mine and say, pray for me. Because it's difficult. This is a time of testing. But are we going to come back to the presence of God? Are we going to expect His promises to be true? Because I believe that probably for you, just like me, this time has caused a lot of pruning. That God wants to do growth in your life. That God wants to do growth in my life. And we can rejoice that God wants us to grow. That he is pruning. Because the fruit of my life will taste so much better to the world when I allow him to prune me, to grow me, to reshape me. This growth leads to a deeper joy. Part of the road is testing of our faith. Are we going to allow Him to test our faith? There can be joy in suffering. And the third path is the path of glory. Because we can see that suffering ushers in glory. Peter says, at the revelation of Christ, meaning that Christ is coming back. Amen? Christ is coming back. And suffering will usher in glory. Now in this passage, what's remarkable is that Peter is not necessarily talking about the glory of Jesus. He's talking about the glory of the believer. That when we have a tested faith, when we have a weighty faith, when we get to heaven, he will say what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a time of honor when we get to heaven that he says those words to us. But in order for us to get to that space of glory, suffering has to happen. Jesus promises us that before he comes, things will get better, or things will get worse rather, than they get better. Things will get worse before they get better. Suffering ushers in glory. He's saying, listen, I suffered. Jesus said, I died. 
Jesus said, I, I, w- I was part of the worst type of execution that could ever happen. And Peter's remarking back upon what Jesus had gone through. And he says, but his death, his suffering ushered in not only the glory of God, not only the glory of Jesus, but our glory as well. The early church suffered greatly. The early church was suffering, and here Peter is saying, guess what, you're going to usher in glory. God is going to honor you one day. When you get to glory, he is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In America, we have not experienced yet this type of persecution. We have not. But Jesus promises it will happen. Now, here's what that means. If Jesus keeps all of his promises, that means no amount of votes, no amount of kings, no amount of leaders, no president can stave off the persecution that is coming to the American and global church. No one can stop it. Because it is a promise of Jesus himself that there will come a day where the wheat will be separated from the chaff. And he's saying, be ready. Embrace persecution. Don't push it away. Don't try and kick it out. Don't try and run from it. Embrace persecution because there will be a day of glory. We will get into heaven and we will see God. And when we've walked through and proven our faith, we will be honored by God himself. One commentator says, it is the believers themselves who will receive praise, glory, and honor. We see this in Romans 2, 7, Romans 2, 10, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. For such will be the expression of his well done, good, and faithful servant. And that's Matthew 25. 21. Now, notice when Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. What happens in Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25? Jesus describes the tribulation. Jesus describes the coming destruction of all the world. Jesus describes his return, but he also describes the suffering of the church. This is the conversation of the wheat and the chaff. When the soldiers come in brandishing their guns, will we remain or will we leave? Jesus had constant descriptions of people who are ready and people who are not ready. The ten virgins, he talks about those who were waiting with their lamps lit and those who were not having their lamps lit. And the ones who were ready went to glory. The ones who were not stayed back. Man, I want to go to glory. When Christ returns, I want him to look me in the face and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And if I get to heaven before that, I want him to say the same thing when I'm there. But there will be suffering. This is why this is a hard word. This is why this is the hardest sermon I have ever had to preach. Because I have to look at you and me in the face and say, embrace suffering. If you want to grow in your faith, you need to pray, God, bring the suffering to test my faith. Because I know that this suffering that I walk through will usher in the glory and honor that you have for me. That it will bring praise to your name. That it will glorify your name. The testing of our faith is not fun, but it's vital. 
Clowney, another commentator, says this, We know that when Jesus comes, he will bring far more than the end to suffering. He will bring his reward of blessing. You see, the suffering Jesus also promises is for a season. The suffering that we experience will not last forever. But heaven and the beauty of the glory of God will, in fact, last forever. Will we be ready when he separates the wheat from the chaff? We must recognize that pain always precedes healing. Think about it. If there were no pain, we would need no healing. Jesus, if there wasn't pain, there wouldn't have been healing. Had he not died, we see in the scriptures that we needed blood to cover and wipe away sin from the very beginning. There was a prophecy that the, the, the serpent will crush, that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, but first there will be trials and tribulations. We see in Isaiah that Jesus will be a suffering servant, and we see that he was in fact a suffering servant, but his death, his suffering brought about our healing. And our suffering will bring about the honor that God has for us as well. But we will have a day of healing. We will have a moment where we are healed from the trials and tribulations. Therefore, at the end of verse 9, Peter is reminding the believers of the outcome of their faith, salvation. He's saying, listen, God has salvation for you. The epicenter of your faith, when you believe in Jesus Christ, despite suffering, the joy that you and I can have is that we are saved. No amount of suffering, no amount of circumstances, nothing in this world can steal the joy of our salvation. Amen? No matter what happens, we're saved. When we believe in Jesus Christ, circumstances cannot hinder the reality of our salvation because God has sealed us, and that is a fact. My friends, do we believe it? Warren Wiersbe, when he talks about trials, reminds us of a very important reality. He says, to deny that our trials are painful is to make them even worse. Christians must accept the fact that there are difficult experiences in life and not put a brave front just to appear more spiritual. Listen, when I talk about the suffering that we're going to have, I know many of you are not like, woohoo, suffering! I can't wait to experience the pain. And when those things happen, you're not probably like, ah, this doesn't hurt at all. I just got broken and all this stuff. I'm fine. You're not going to be fine, and that's okay. It will be difficult. The trials will be hard. But we have to be honest when we get to our knees in the presence of God and say, this is hard. This hurts but blessed be your name. But that also means that we need to turn to one another. Peter, remind, let me remind you, is writing an entire church, an entire group of people, which he lists in the very beginning. And it's to us as the church, the body of believers, we are to walk alongside one another. Like I had said, when I was in a time of joylessness, I reached out to a mentor of mine and asked him to pray for me, and immediately I felt the presence of the living God because someone was lifting me up. We need to admit and confess when it's difficult. This pandemic has not been easy. And it continues to go on and on 
and on. And we can slip into joylessness, but when the pain happens and it hurts, we need to open up. We need to confess it. Imagine this idea, too, the the picture of a a baby being birthed. That's a really painful time for the mothers. It's not easy. It's not fun. They're not like, woo, I can't wait to go in labor and feel that pain. But when the pain is over, they have a baby in their arms. They can say, you know what? I've heard some ladies say that they forgot completely when they held their baby the pain. Because they had the joy of the, the, what they had brought into the world. My friends, that same thing is true about our suffering, that we are birthing something. And when we get to heaven, we will see the full beauty of it. But you and I, in anticipation and in expectation, can get through the pain and the suffering of that childbirth. It is a promise that you and I can have joy because we see the transcendent nature of God's joy. We see that testing will be difficult, but we will get through it. We see that the path of glory is there, that we will be honored when we get to heaven. Clowney says, our present suffering cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory that we'll experience in heaven and the suffering we have here, it's nothing compared to to this there can be joy in suffering and the fourth path is the path of growth and we can see that suffering grows the church it is an easily proven fact that during persecution the church grows exponentially but when there is no suffering the church plateaus or begins to decline One of the nails in the coffin of the exponential growth of the church was when Constantine said, we are now a Christian nation. Look it up. It stopped the growth of the church in the exponential manner. One of the dangers of being in a Christian nation is that the church plateaus and begins to shrink. If you look at the statistics of where we are now as the American church, it is continually declining, consistently From generation to generation, there are less people in Generation Z than there were people in the millennial generation that go to church. And then the boomers were more likely to go to church than the millennials. It is only getting worse. It is only getting worse. And the only answer I fully believe is the persecution of the church. Now, that's not a fun word. That is not a happy word. That is not something that we want to own, but the Bible is very secure in the promise of suffering of the church, and history bears the truth that the the church only grows in an exponential manner during persecution. Why? Because when people are willing to die for their faith, people look at them as strange and say, I want what they have. Look at Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. I keep coming back to that because it was fun to do that with Mike and Brian. If you watch VBS, it was fun. But it was also a reminder of beautiful faith. When they came out of the fire, you know, sorry, Ebuchadnezzar, no, no. Anyways, yeah, whatever, the king at the time, I can't remember for whatever reason, it's blanking off my mind. But when he said, you need to bow to my statue, When you need to bow to my statue, worship me. And they said, no, we're going to worship the living God. You know what happened when they came out of the fire? He began to worship God. Nebuchadnezzar, that's the name. That is powerful. 
That is incredible. My friends, you and I have got to walk through the fire. The American church will walk through the fire. And we will see the American church grow again. Are we praying for the church to be persecuted? Or are we praying against it? Because I tell you, if we're praying against the persecution of the church, we are praying against what the scripture says to pray for. That's not an easy word. Jesus says it will come. And when the persecution is done, I will what? Return. I will come again. And we say we pay lip service so much to the fact that we want Jesus to come. And when we say Jesus is coming, we say amen. But when it comes to actually wanting him to return through the fire of persecution, we sell ourselves short. We say, nope, <laughs> I can wait a couple generations. We can hold that off. And we honor those martyrs that we see in the world and we say, wow, look at the church in China. The underground church has grown exponentially over and over again. The church in Vietnam, which was persecuted, grew exponentially, especially in the Alliance. We have over a million believers in Vietnam. That's almost double what we have in America. Do you see? Do you see what I'm saying? And that's just one part of the Alliance outside of America. The church is by far larger outside of America in the CMA than it is in America. Why? Persecution. But we can have joy in suffering knowing that God will grow His church through our suffering. When our faith is walked through the testing of the fire and we are standing there, people will say, God must be real because this is bananas. How can believers who are burnt at the stake who are lighting the way to Caesar's palace, still sing songs of worship while they're burning. How is that possible? The church grew under that persecution. When believers are being persecuted, they're not necessarily decrying their persecution either. They use that persecution as leverage and as a platform for evangelism because trials embolden evangelism. My friends, I do not like this passage of Scripture because it's hard, but it's necessary. I don't know if you have ever read the statistics, but 7 out of 10 American believers do not believe that they need to be evangelizing in their life. 7 out of 10. They might say that evangelism is kind of important, but they don't think it's important for them to practice. Why? Because it's easy. Trials embolden our evangelism. When we experience that suffering and we experience the joy, the inexpressible, unexplainable joy that God brings in his presence in our lives, no matter what's going on around us and we can still worship him and praise him like we talked about last week, our evangelism is emboldened because we see that the world around us is dying. Paul said something crazy with his passion for the lost. He had said, I would be willing to go to hell to save souls. What? That's how passionate he was about evangelism. He knew it wasn't possible. He knew that wouldn't happen. But he was sharing with the church his desperate passion for the lost. And he said, let's get passionate, friends. 
Because when we usher in the kingdom of God through suffering, we're also going to all nations. When everyone hears the gospel, Jesus promises, I'm coming. Are we paying lip service to our desire for the coming of the king, or are we living through the fire? Are we being emboldened in evangelism? This is not an easy word. But we can have joy in suffering. The paths that God has called us to, the recognition of the transcendence of God's presence, the transcendence of the joy that only He can give, the beautiful reality that testing will prove our faith genuine, that we will receive glory after we have suffered, and that we can see the path of growth that the church will grow. Have you prayed for the church to grow? I'm sure you have. And I'm not just talking about Indiana Alliance Church. I'm talking about the church in general. Has your heart been broken by how people are walking away from Christ or not even going in darkening a door? When we pray for the growth of the church, Jesus responds, get ready for suffering. That's not easy. Raise your hand if you think that's easy. Not a single hand. But it's necessary. Peter talks about this importance, but he encourages the church by saying, no matter what, there's joy. No matter what, there's joy. May we see that joy transcends trials. The testing of our faith strengthens us, that we have a future glory and use our trials to grow the church. I'm going to leave you with this hard word. This is not easy. But when we waste time whining about our persecutions, rather than allowing them to spur us on to a greater witness, we are missing a great opportunity for kingdom impact. We can spend a lot of time bemoaning the persecutions that may or may not come, that may or may not be a reality right now, and when we waste time crying about them and decrying them, we are not leveraging them for evangelism. That's a hard word. But I encourage us to see what Peter says, that we embrace persecution so that the joy of the Lord can be a reality in our lives despite suffering. And then we'll be weird. We'll be strange. And that's a good thing. Joy transcends trials. The testing of our faith strengthens us that we may have a future glory and use our trials to grow the church. Let's pray.